Welcome to the Infrastructure Show. I'm your host, Professor Joseph Schofer of Northwestern University. The Infrastructure Show is designed to present to listeners the reality of America's infrastructure, its condition, why it is the way it is, and what can be done about it. We gratefully acknowledge contributions to sustain the Infrastructure Show from Dr. Robert Peskin, Dr. Raymond Ellis, and Andrea and Ron DeFeo. Climate change is raising both average and peak temperatures across the United States. Higher temperatures are stressing our infrastructure, shortening the lives of some, and causing heating problems not anticipated in structural designs. Is our critical infrastructure prepared for higher temperatures in the future? To explore this subject, we're talking with Mikhail Chester, who is Associate Professor in the School of Sustainable Engineering and the Built Environment and Director of the Metis Center for Infrastructure and Sustainable Engineering at Arizona State University. Mikhail, I'm very happy to talk with you today. Great, and glad to be speaking with you as well. So what are the trends? What's the evidence? Is our environment getting hotter and how much hotter? Our, uh, our environment is absolutely getting hotter. Um, you know, there's objective measures uh, over long time periods that show that. And it's getting hotter for a number of reasons, climate change being one of them, but urbanization also being uh, a major driver of that heat. You know, just sort of adding of thermal mass, uh, you know, concrete and asphalt, for example, cities expanding over time. And, uh, you know, these sort of forces come together. Of course, air temperature um, and changing air temperatures, particularly at the extreme, are a major factor in how we think about how much hotter our cities are getting. And then there's also the dynamic of uh, heat at both night and uh, during the day. So it's easy to think about heat during peak sun at around, you know, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. But a big issue also is uh, how hot it is at night or how cold it doesn't get at night anymore, uh, creating dynamics where, for example, air conditioning may never be able to shut off if it never gets cool enough at night. So the demands on those kinds of, of functional systems are more continuous as opposed to peak and valley. That's exactly right. So you can imagine uh, in a situation like you might have in the Southwest in a place like Phoenix where, um, you know, in the past, the nighttime temperatures were still fairly low and it allowed for air conditioning units, for example, to cycle down more frequently, thereby drawing less electricity from the grid, whereas, you know, nowadays uh, air conditioning units may just stay on perpetually because the nighttime highs are still fairly high. So when we think about these uh, relationships of kind of infrastructure and the services they provide, we try to think about both sides of the equation. There's the dynamic of, in this case, for example, temperature is a hazard uh, creating vulnerabilities in the grid itself um, or in infrastructure. It could be any type of infrastructure. But then there's also how we change how we use that infrastructure. And when it comes to something like power, um, there's a pretty profound dynamic at the intersection of both supply and demand in terms of how those profiles change that you don't see as much when we talk about something like heat and transportation or heat and water consumption. Yes, there's slight behavioral changes with transport and water consumption, but they're not as radical as, uh, for example, power demand uh, during heat waves. So I'm trying to get my, my head around this. So as, as I consider infrastructure systems, we've got network systems like energy and transportation communication where the functionality of that system and the demand on that system may may change and may stress the system. But you also have uh, issues of structural integrity. So it's not just that the, that we use the bridge differently, but the bridge is, it's, is, is stressed by heat itself. Exactly. Structural and operational integrity. That's right. And 
um, you know, the, the place to start thinking about it uh, when we talk about this sort of dynamic is, is how we design infrastructure and sort of the normality that we've often baked into what we assume the environment is going to be and how infrastructure need to function that environment. And depending on where you are, um, you know, particularly uh, in sort of the northeastern U.S. or the eastern U.S. Uh, or even the northern U.S. where cities might be a little bit older, um, the infrastructure that we've designed um, is largely for environments that uh, or conditions that are no longer being experienced. We're already well past those conditions, whether it's heat or even maybe something like precipitation. Um, and now the question becomes, you know, what what happens? So you're pushing assets beyond their design tolerances. So, of course, you're going to see failures happen more frequently. And those failures may not be catastrophic. They may be uh, incremental. They might be small. They might be rutting, for example, of asphalt, uh, you know, cracking of asphalt that, you know, over time creates, uh, you know, some minor degradation. But over the course of all of the infrastructure that we have, it's a pretty serious dynamic playing out. And then, of course, there are extreme events that also, um, you know, may push infrastructure well beyond the thresholds that they're designed for, causing failures. So are there, do you have some uh, contemporary examples of heat-related failures at large scale? Oh, yeah. I mean, if you look at the 2003 Northeast blackout in um, the United States, uh, that was, uh, you know, not coincidentally occurring in August during peak heat and peak demand uh, from air conditioning. And, you know, you've got your systems that are one stress, um, because uh, the assets themselves are pushed to their tolerance. You can't move as much electricity through them at that time. But then also you've got, um, you know, people basically using the system, um, at, at, you know, to its maximum. And, you know, there's no space for anything to go wrong. But, of course, that's precisely when things are going to go wrong, when you push these systems uh, to these extremes. Um, there's lots of examples of, uh, for example, over large cities in Phoenix, Las Vegas, Los Angeles, how assets fail much more frequently when you've got extreme events, uh, for example, heat, than you know, during normal conditions. And we know that this happens. We plan for it to some extent. But the question then becomes with, for example, climate change pushing the extremes further and further, pushing the duration of extremes uh, further and further uh, out, you know, can we actually have the resourcing and response ready for that. Well, setting aside the resourcing issue, we can get back to that, but do we have the design uh, capabilities to respond to, to the, this changing pattern of heat? Yeah, that's the key question. So can we deploy um, models of how we do infrastructure design over the past 100 years to the problem going forward? Yes, to some extent. That would be the hardening, strengthening, armoring approach. You know, if if temperature maxes, you know, up until today were, uh, you know, at 105 degrees and now they're projected to be at 115, can we engineer the uh, transmission line to be able to operate in 115? Yes, we can do that. Um, but to some extent, the question is, can we re-engineer all of the infrastructure out there? And that's where I would argue no. Uh, there's simply too much of it and climate is changing too quickly. And then there's also the question of, to what extreme do you design for? Because climate change is uh, naturally a problem about uncertainty. Is it 115? Is it 120? Is it 112? I don't know, but um, you know the answer and how I might design might change depending on where we land in that uncertainty spectrum. Not only that, we have to recognize that 
um, it's not a, a linear uh, increase in cost as we increase designs. Actually, it's a nonlinear increase. So things get much more expensive the more you have to armor strengthen uh, Harden going forward. But, but with, do we have alternatives other than armoring and, and strengthening? That is, can we look at designs that are simply less vulnerable? Yeah, exactly. So there, there's another suite of kind of uh, the resilience uh, thinking uh, that revolves around this idea of how do we make things less vulnerable. Uh, so we've talked a lot and done a lot of work around the idea of safe to fail. So right now our infrastructure are designed as fail safe. Um, you know, we design them uh, not to fail, and when they do, the effects are catastrophic. Um, what about a scenario that's safe to fail? We allow the environment in. There's lots of great examples with flooding, uh, where we basically give room for flooding to happen. We, of course, don't want loss of life or major economic damage. Um, we allow some functionality of that flood area, um, but we recognize that it's a high-risk area, and we plan for and we design in what's going to happen when it floods, when things fail. So this is the Dutch concept of room for the river, where if I understand the, the history of the Dutch fighting the uh, floodwaters, was really a change in direction, which said we're not going to build these barriers because there is no such thing as an impenetrable barrier. We're going to accommodate the water in a completely different way. So can we apply that to other systems? Uh, I think we could. So, you know, when we think about, uh, for example, power systems, uh, we might think about, you know, how do we allow power uh, systems to fail, but at the same time provide some extensibility to the system where, you know, we can provide a critical flow of electricity to maybe a few community buildings or a few critical assets. So microgrids might come into play here. Rooftop solar, uh, strategically located, might come into play. Um, you might even think of a scenario where we go to passive cooling of buildings, you know, kind of the Frank Lloyd Wright thinking around, you know, how we design in, you know, high heat areas where maybe we don't just hold the environment back with air conditioning, but to some extent we re-architecture our buildings to allow some heat in, um, but also maintain some coolness in how we do it. So I would characterize this as a kind of mixed strategy as opposed to, well, we're going to provide enough electric power for whatever need you may come up with. We'll find other ways that don't go in that direction. So microgrids is something to add, and maybe finding ways to re reduce use is another strategy. Yeah, and I think everything's on the table. Nature-based solutions are another great one, um, basically asking what, what capacities do we want nature to provide that we're not going to... Um, build in with human-engineered infrastructure. I think that's catching on right now, and there's a lot of traction, and we're trying to figure out what those solutions look like. But I think fundamentally what we're up against, uh, given the uncertainty in climate change and given the vast uh, infrastructure that we have to adapt, essentially, to this quickly changing problem, which uh, to me is somewhat untenable, um, you know, is this reality that, you know, you've got to think across both the traditional armoring, strengthening, hardening approach, as well as this surprise approach, this idea that failure is almost inevitable. Um, not almost, is, is inevitable. It's going to happen. Um, and the question then becomes, what do, what do we do? How prepared are we when that failure plays out? So isn't, isn't part of the strategy likely to be accommodating the failure? And that's when you talked about dealing with higher indoor temperatures or reducing use and providing service to only certain functions in a peak or crisis situation. 
Is that not just finding ways to accommodate? Yeah, it, it, that's right. So uh, there's some scale of the problem where you're armoring, strengthening, hardening. You're doing your best to prevent the failure from happening. But there's another scale of the problem that's more strategic where you're also recognizing that there's a limitation to how much you can yeah. armor, strengthen, harden. That failure is inevitable. And, and the question is, how are you prepared for that failure to play out? Yeah, so so you're using the Dutch room for the r- river option as an analog, I think, is particularly important because it strikes me that that's accommodation and adaptation. It's not trying to deploy more of the same where the risk of more of the same is when that fails, you're really in trouble. That's right. And it's it's also relinquishing some emphasis on the typical approach that we've used for engineering systems at the interface of the environment that has focused on this paradigm of control. Uh, for the past 100, 150 years, most of our infrastructure has been designed around controlling the environment, uh, holding water back, something to that effect. Um, now, you know, I, there's a lot more thinking around letting the environment in and working within the sort of social, environmental, as well as infrastructural capacities available to you to design novel solutions that aren't the, the sort of typical holding things back. My sense is that we've met the environment and discovered that there are a lot of cases where it wins and we lose, and so you need to play the game with that expectation. Yeah, that's right. And the way that we describe it is there's a decoupling between how quickly Mm -hmm. the environment is changing and how quickly we are capable of changing infrastructure. And the argument that I would make is that that decoupling is growing. Um, The environment is changing very quickly. Infrastructure are, of course, changing, but not as quickly. Uh, there's only so much we can, we can make happen. We have a limited capacity to change infrastructure, at least That's in terms right. of the, the rate of, of change. That's right. How do you envision implementing what I'm interpreting as a strategic solution? That is, it's not just uh, change the way we provide and, and distribute electric power, but how we manage the use of, of that power in, in the face of, of uh, large environmental forces. It seems to me there's an organizational challenge to work strategically. That's exactly right. And we've uh, we've done a little bit of work in this area trying to understand what the sort of models of organizational structures and priorities are of infrastructure agencies. And one of the things to recognize is that Pretty much every major infrastructure agency across the United States is structured in what's called a divisional bureaucracy. Uh, they basically have strategic leadership at the top. There's divisions with, with middle management, workers at the bottom, so to speak. And those divisions, um, you know, largely don't talk to each other. So imagine a transportation agency. There's a pavement division, a traffic division. There's even divisions around human resources and so on. And climate change, of course, is a problem that cuts across all of those, right? So if you're going to deal with climate change, you're going to need all of those uh, divisions and expertise to come together. So uh, often what we see is, you know, innovation um, in organizations happens, um, you know, in many different ways. But, you know, in the context of climate change, what can be beneficial is giving more authority and more power to middle management and frontline workers who are better able to detect and sense the changes that are afoot. So a good example would be, you know, a bridge engineer who has built, you know, 10 bridges uh, in the past few years and has recognized that, you know, the standard design just isn't quite cutting it. Um, you know, the, the use of riprap or, you know, how you're placing the piers or the, the way you're designing the foundations. You know, you're starting to see some degradation happening a lot quicker than you would have expected, and you're associating that with maybe more extreme events. And you're saying to yourself, 
like we need to do something different. And these are the sorts of folks that, you know, we need to be able to learn from, internalize that knowledge, and ultimately imbue them with some decision-making authority to make those changes happen. It strikes me that that's a very general uh, management strategy that could apply to any kind of systems. Could apply, certainly, speaking as a transportation person, could apply to the railroad industry, could apply to the airline industry. And just to try to say it back to you to make sure I understand, it sounds like what you're really talking about is distributed management and, uh, if you will, reducing the bureaucratization of management so that everybody, everything has to come out of the book if you're going to deploy it in the real world. That's right. And, and also, it, it sort of speaks to the democratization of, of knowledge making within an organization. And again, if the environment is more chaotic, you need to generate knowledge within infrastructure organizations differently than if the environment is stable. And, uh, you know, you to, to your point, you need to uh, imbue uh, frontline workers and, and those who are in a good uh, location within the organization to generate that knowledge with the resources, with uh, the authority to make, uh, you know, decisions on behalf of the organization. But you're, in a sense, you're really swimming upstream if you look at the history of, of bureaucracies and organizations. That is, the, it strikes me, though, the, the older they get and the more stable they get, the more rigid they get and the more uh, everything is, is codified in a book and that's how you run the business. Exactly. And that works really well when there's periods of stability, like environmental stability, and your model is focused on efficiency, which is where our infrastructure systems and organizations have been. But as things move to chaotic, the organization is not going to be able to maintain that model as effectively. They're going to have to innovate in new ways. They're going to experience failures that are going to threaten the viability of the organization. And they're going to have to adopt new models of, of generating knowledge and making sense of what's happening in these chaotic environments. Yeah, so in some respects, you need to manage chaos with a little bit of chaos on the management side. Exactly, and that's called requisite complexity. Yes. And that's, right. that's this idea of uh, the, the organization needs to have a repertoire of responses at least as large. Yes as what the environment is throwing at it. Yes, I had heard, heard the term as requisite variety and, and comes from complex systems and has broad applicability. Very interesting. I want to take you back to maybe a little bit more mundane subject, and that is, what about building codes? Are building codes now becoming responsive to climate issues? I, I know ASCE, American Society of Civil Engineers, recently issued a, a new design standard 722, which has some different loadings in it. We've talked about it on this podcast. Are people paying attention to heat as building codes evolve? Absolutely. And, and uh, not just building codes, but in design codes in general, you are absolutely starting to see an effort being made uh, from the federal level to professional societies like the American Society of Civil Engineers down to the local level um, around, you know, climate adaptive design. And, you know, certainly there's some places that are more progressive about it than others. But, you know, what you're starting to see is, for example, professional societies like ASCE write the guidelines. And those guidelines uh, are now, um, you know, front and center in how cities are thinking about modernizing, you know, their um, uh, building codes, their design codes, um, and so on. So, yes, uh, you are seeing that happen. Whether it's happening at a large systemic scale, I don't know. But uh, absolutely, it is starting to happen. Yeah, we'll start. It, but the the rate is not not all that rapid because to change, get down to the level of changing local building codes uh, takes some time. 
It does. And, and yeah, that's, that's the challenge with infrastructure, right? I mean, the, the sort of core lifeline infrastructure that we often think of, power, water, roads, um, have been um, designed intentionally to be rigid and long-lasting. And, you know, that is coming face-to-face with the reality of a quick-changing climate. And now you've got to, you know, not only re-engineer the infrastructure, you've got to re-engineer the organization, the codes, and so on. And uh, you're running up against this rigidity. So, Mikhail, I, I want to wrap up with a broader question that uh, extends this to uh, the issue of how people make decisions. And that is, where do you see the responsibility for preparedness for climate change and particularly for the change in peak heat levels or temperature levels? One of the concerns that occurs to me is that we consistently see cases where managers, decision makers, political leaders uh, have information about problems coming at us fairly quickly um, in in the near future. For example, bridge failures or the failures of large structures where it's been possible for decision makers to delay responding in large measure to be concerned primarily with saving money. How do we get people to pay attention to these emergent issues? Yeah, so... One of the uh, dynamics to recognize is that infrastructure organizations um, are, are largely public organizations or semi-public private, and they, they haven't had this threat of uh, disappearing like a private company would. And, and this is not me advocating for privatizing all infrastructure, but it's sort of recognizing this dynamic. Uh, a hurricane, you know, hits New Orleans and destroys half the city. Um, you know, the the stormwater, you know, agency, the levy agency still exists. You know, people are going to get fired, things will change, but the agency will still function and exist. Um, so there's, I believe, a uh, shift that we are going to start to see uh, that's going to be generated by increasing numbers of failures, whether they're small or big, we'll find out. And those failures will put pressure on a number of different parties involved with infrastructure. So the agencies themselves, for sure, they're simply uh, not going to be able to keep up, I would argue, and are going to have to change how they approach design, change how they approach response. The other side of it is insurance. I think the insurance industry is probably going to be a major driver of climate adaptive infrastructure. I think we're simply going to end up in situations where insurers are going to say, if you don't adapt your system or make some effort here, we're not going to insure it. You simply can't have the asset. And we're already starting to see a very rich discussion uh, emerge from insurance companies. Uh, we're starting to see leadership from insurance companies. We're starting to see novel data sets being produced by insurance companies describing the cost first benefits of adaptation, which are, which are very much uh, you know, clear. Um, and I think the insurance industry is ultimately going to be a major driver of this when uh, you don't have legislature and, and policymakers uh, making things happen. Very, very insightful observation. It strikes me that this is going to fall more solidly on private sector where there are particularly publicly owned companies, stock companies, where there's an obligation for disclosure of financial risks, which you really don't have so much of on the public sector side. Mikhail, this has been most interesting. You've taken us on a long journey across a, a number of issues, starting with technical, but also dealing with organizational and cultural. I really appreciate your spending the time with us and look forward to tracking your work as, as you move forward in, in the future. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Uh, great to speak with you. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Infrastructure Show. If you enjoyed the conversation as much as we did, 
please subscribe to our podcast and encourage your friends to join us too. The Infrastructure Show is recorded at the Studio Media Recording Company in Evanston, Illinois, under the direction of Scott Steinman, recording engineer with a commitment to great sound. Our producer is Marion Sowers, a journalist with a passion for infrastructure. And I am Professor Joseph Schofer. Few people are more curious about infrastructure than I. Thank you.